We are going on tour. The Glamorous Trash Podcast and my book tour have collabed and we're coming to a city near you. Click the link in the show notes to to get all of the deets. We're coming to New York City. On June 4th, we are kicking off an event with Jon Stewart. No big deal. That's our very first show in New York City. Then we're coming to Washington, D.C., Nashville, Chicago, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Seattle, Portland, and Los Angeles. So get your tickets now. We are doing three different events because, you know, I'm always doing the most. That's just on brand, right? First, there's a glamorous trash party. It's the podcast meets the book tour meets Coachella, a live show featuring podcast segments, book segments, a very special guest. And of course, there's a runway walk at the end for people to show off their fits because the dress code to every event is obviously glamorous trash. We are also doing a cookie country club. It's the anti-country club country club. And it's very dreamy. You get like a bunch of products. There's little events. And it's a more intimate event where you meet other cookies and listen to a book chat with what me and another special guest. And then the final event, the Behind the Bangs Writing Workshop. I finally did it, put it together, put together this workshop because I wrote this book in many ways for younger me. And younger me would not have gotten off her couch unless there was also a workshop being taught. I wanted the gyms. I wanted I wanted the knowledge. I wanted the education. That's what I would have wanted. So I've decided I'm doing it. And in the workshop is going to be the six writing gyms that took me forever to learn. 15 years. In my 15-year career as a TV writer and author and blah, 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 all the other things I've written, there are six things that I always use, and all of those are in this workshop. So if you have an interest in writing, sign up. All the ticket links are live today. Click the show notes. Click my Instagram. We are coming to a city near you, and there's going to be some meet and greets. I'll sign some copies of books. We'll give out more books, and I have uh, some pieces of merch that I'm taking on the road, and I'm going to give them out at the shows. Welcome to Celebrity Book Club. This is a podcast that recaps and celebrates the memoirs of female celebrities. I'm your host, Chelsea DeVantes. I'm a TV writer, comedian, filmmaker, and sometimes I'm in stuff too. And this week we are book clubbing Carrie Brownstein's memoir titled Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl. What a title. I loved it. Published in 2015. It was a New York Times bestseller. And you know Carrie from her band Sleater Kinney, also from starring in the show Portlandia with Fred Armisen. This book goes in-depth on what it is like to be a woman in rock, a question Carrie was asked constantly. It's got breakups, songwriting, a gorgeous story about finding yourself through music, a small Jack White sentence that sent me on an epic rabbit hole. And just before we dive in, I have to let you guys know I mispronounced a very important person's name in this book throughout the episode. Her name is Corin Tucker, and I kept pronouncing it Corinne. And my guest even corrected me, and I was like, no, no, I know it's Corinne because I was listening to some of the audiobook. But it turns out I was listening to the audiobook on 1.7 speed, and it sounded like Corinne. But it is not. It is Corin. It is all my fault. Anyways, uh, please keep that in mind. And now we're going to start off by playing a song from Sleater Kinney that inspired the title of this very book. Oh, 
Okay, we are diving into everything today with an incredible guest. You know her from so many things. The show Insatiable on Netflix, Horse Girl, which came out of Sundance and is so good. You have to see it. The upcoming movie Shortcomings, uh, which is also going to Sundance, and a comedy that just dropped last year called Spin Me Round, and so many other things I'm not even mentioning. I am so thrilled to have her on the podcast. It's Debbie Ryan. Hey. Hi. What's up? Um, What's up? You ready to book club on this fine Saturday morning? I'm so ready. I've just been curled up inside the pages of this book all week, and I'm I like I'm desperate to talk to you about it. I'm so excited. That's the exact same experience I've had. So, what made you choose of all the memoirs, Carrie Brownstein's book? I had a sort of short list of ones that I was interested in and looking at, and I think the intersection of music, comedy, and punk culture that she sort of you know, her her balance of like irreverence and boldness and putting herself out there and in sort of both of her most prominent creative endeavors. Also, truthfully, I wasn't super familiar with her work. I hadn't seen an episode of Portlandia. I had sort of listened to Sleater Kinney like bits, but I think it was um, the opportunity to discover someone's, you know, discover the art as I was discovering the artist, that was appealing to me. That's really cool. I It's funny, I've had this book for a long time and I was actually a little, I'm so glad you chose this book and made me read it because it's been on my bookshelf and I was honestly a little afraid of it because I was like, this book is so cool. <laughs> and I also didn't, there are a lot of people who DM'd me on Instagram. They're like, Sleater Kenny is my favorite band of all time. And like, I'm, I'm I'm kind of new to their music. Like I knew of them always. I loved Portlandia, but um, I like got to know her music a lot more from this book. So we played the song um, "Modern Girl" to start this episode, and that's obviously it's a direct tie-in to where the title comes from. "Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl," but I was really hung up on the title, and I want to know your thoughts. So I one, it's such a good memoir title, and I feel like a lot of books, especially lately, miss. If they're a memoir, they think being a memoir is enough and they don't have a good title. Have you noticed that? That's interesting. Yeah. Or or it feels uh, insidery and sort of exclusive in a way that's like, I might not understand the relevance of this title until chapter 30, at which point yeah. I'm now daunted to even begin. Yeah. Or that like without your name, like I loved Jessica Simpson's memoir, but like without Jessica Simpson on the book, the title open book is not... That's not really given much. You know, you're not picking it up. Whereas like Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl, I was like, oh, that like really draws you in. But I got really caught up on it. Um, And so I was curious, what did you, this is the most book club question of all time, but like by the time you got to the end of the book, what? why did you think she chose that title? Even though it sort of is mostly covered in the beginning of the book, um, her mom's journey with anorexia and disordered eating, she speaks about how she was going through puberty as a young girl when she was visiting her mom in this eating disorder treatment center and was surrounded by all of these women with sort of different, um, you know, visible presentations of their disordered eating, but also just so aware of dysmorphia. And then I realized that so, like a really strong theme in the book is her desire to belong, her desire to be a part Mm. of something. And, um, and while we think that punk is subversive and it's about rejecting things and not being a part of something, I think the way that she brings you on her journey, it doesn't seem that she's very interested in rejecting very much. It seems like she's interested in sort of selectively accepting and she's curious and she's open. She mentions that she's 
reset multiple times when she moves from Olympia to Portland and that she just sort of has a a problem with stillness. And I think that that yeah. inner hunger is is such a, a theme that it tracks throughout the entire, you know, every sort of corner that she evaluates in the book. That is so beautifully said. Okay, you just nailed the title for me. I've really been <laughs> ruminating on the title. She has a chapter on her mom and then a chapter on her dad. And the one about her mom is that she doesn't realize her mom's anorexic when she learns the word anorexic. And she kind of like is taunting her mom with it or kind of saying the word all the time until she realizes like this really is something her mom's struggling with. And her mom goes into a rehab facility for it. And then later, she says a year later, her mom disappears. And we never hear from the mom or about the mom again until this like one passage later in the book that we'll get to. But it was so interesting to me to have the title be Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl when like her mom's kind of gone. You know what I mean? And like is... It's like clearly such a specific relationship to this part of her mom. And then it meaning like ambition and wanting more out of life, but also the actual act of hunger. And the years this band got popular is when women were uh, supposed to be like thinner than dust. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, if you're bigger than a dust particle, <laughs> you're huge. Do you have a body? And so I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a body? If not, we would love you to star in this movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's- yeah, I just, I was so layered. Okay, I'm going to read the first sentence of the prologue and the last paragraph of the prologue. I wanted only one thing on tour, to slam my hand in a door and break my fingers. Then I would go home. Okay, that's when I knew, I when the first sentence of a book is good, I'm like, uh, okay, I know I'm in. And then she ends the prologue with, Sleater Kenny was my family, the longest relationship I had ever been in. It held my secrets, my bones. It was in my veins. It had saved my life countless times. It still loved me even when I was terrible to it. It might have been the first unconditional love I'd ever known. And I was about to destroy Sleater Kenny. Oof. I was like, yeah. So that's when I fell in love with the book. So very early, the prologue hadn't even started. I felt fortunate because I didn't go in knowing a lot about the book. I was interested Mm. in it. Thought she was badass, loved the intersection, but I didn't know if I was going to get early childhood, if I was going to get Portlandia, if like I didn't know. And I was so glad that it is, it's Sleater Kinney and it's her journey through searching, building, restlessness, people changing around her, identity. Like it's her in relation to Sleater Kinney, which I think is quite nice. I, I also love that. And it also reminded me of Carly Simon's book where she, it's like the book stops when uh, she divorces James Taylor. And she had, she had like 20 years of life after that when she was writing the book. But she's like, the, it's over now. Because it was like this big, you have these like big epic artistic moments in your life that like kind of have a completion. And yeah, I, I, I had the same thing with approaching this book. And so we learned some about her childhood. She grows up middle class in the Northwest. Um, she ends up in Olympia and Portland. I had a roommate um, who was from Olympia. And and when when she was describing the vibe of the Northwest, I was like, oh my God, that is exactly like my one roommate who was like from Olympia. And it's very like grunge 90s, exactly what it looks like in Portlandia. Yeah, when she was describing Olympia as this sort of representation of a place where people could go and professionally be creative and be in communities together that inspired one another. I understood what it represented to her. I thought it was a very cool way of like materializing her desperation to build something sort of fitting of that. 
Yeah. And also the cities that allow you to do that. It really reminded me of Chicago, which is where I um, studied and performed comedy for a long time, where it's like, it's a city. We're all here, but also like, um, you are not in an actual city, like for the entertainment business. And also Baltimore, like these artistic scenes that allow you to like be your best artistic self because you're not actually in Hollywood or New York. It's funny you say that. I live in Columbus, Ohio with my husband and he is from there. His He's in a two-person band and he and his bandmate are both born and raised Columbus, Ohio. Um, amazing. They live there. I think there's something about a town that is sort of just still enough where you have to create, especially before so much technology accessible. It's like, it's still enough that, and you sort of get lulled into having four seasons and there's a rhythm to it where you have to sort of create the sunshine, the entertainment, the, it sort of gives you enough stillness. The sky is big enough to dream and you have access to enough things to create, but it's not, you know, the sort of paradox of choice, you know, it, it really creates yeah. this sort of cocoon. It has to like come, like your creation and your creativity has to come from you, which I feel like makes the best creativity. Whereas like, um, I live in LA now and I was in New York last year where it's like those cities sort of maybe press creativity onto you. And then are you going to meet what's being asked of you versus like what you've come up with, like on your own with no one around. And I'm I'm about to disappear to a, a small town in, in upstate New York. And I'm like, so excited to be like, oh my God, am I going to get my artistry back? I mean, it's so interesting too, because she's trying to get out of her small town, but where she's going is Olympia, right. which is is a city, but it isn't, you know what I mean? Like the cityest of cities and like so much of her is formed from the Northwest, which is, I feel an area of the country we don't get to see often on TV, which is why Portlandia was also such a revelation. Um, that it was cool to read about it in this book. Definitely. I like the sort of the small townness of it all. And also she speaks about looking for herself and who she was in relation to other people. And there, there's this thing when her mom gets sick where she was like, I finally knew who I was. I was the person they all pitied. Like yeah, she was so- yeah. And she, having that identity. <laughs> yeah. She was so sort yeah. of like desperate to be seen. And she speaks, one of the themes that I love so much is like how it, shows up in different ways throughout her life. But um, her, like to be acknowledged, whether it's to be rejected, to be laughed at, but to to sort of put on plays and skits and sing and perform in front of her family was to be, it was to be acknowledged that she existed. Like it didn't have, it wasn't about being sort of good. It was just about like having a place in the world. Which is such a metaphor for so many people in this business. Like her, she went into art, but the the idea of like, I'm doing this just so I can feel like I exist is such a, yeah. a beautiful and tragic concept. She says, um, a response, any response implied that I existed, that I was not a weirdo, that I'd be okay. I could have gone to a school counselor or even talked to my parents, but I needed someone on TV or in the movies to reach out to me. Not because they were famous, but because they were so far away. It was like being seen from outer space. Suddenly, I didn't feel small. I was bigger than the house I was living in, larger than my town. Thanks to them, I somehow belonged to the world. I always think about these moments when fans approach me or write letters or send messages on social media. I try to recall the sturdiness that comes from recognition. And I do love that she really keeps in mind like how powerful it is to be a fan. She's like, this is what it is to be a fan, is to to be a part of something and to 
to care about something and to have it sort of care about you back. And she remembers how important that is. So while she never seems to pander, she understands how profound and powerful it is when she had that pen pal, like how powerful that can be for someone to feel sort of seen from outer space in their small town. Yeah. And she talks about how she like wrote letters to a bunch of famous people and they never write her back. So then she starts going to like soap stars and just like anyone she can find and like they write her back. And she's like, oh my God, I'm a person. And I I love that you brought up the fan thing because this is so silly, but I remember a moment on Instagram very early where I had the thought like, I can't like, I can't follow Beyonce. Like I'm not her friend. Like I can't like her photo. Right. Like that's ridiculous. And I, what I love that's transformed for me and also even in just doing this podcast is like how um, how much being a fan of others' work um, empowers you mm-hmm. versus it feels like the fan concept has this like power dynamic too of like, oh, you're a fan, they're the art. But it's like, it doesn't feel like that when you really are a fan. It feels like you then get to like take part in the art. I always thought like being a fan made you less than and in a way that I think I, made me miss out on something. On page five, she says, this is what it is to be a fan. Curious, open, desiring for connection, to feel like art has chosen you, claimed you as its witness. Which is sort of it's like- so beautiful. The idea of yeah. witnessing something- does transform it, does make it sort of real, the Hawthorne effect of it all. But And then she also then on 25 says, you know, she sort of gets to understand the nuance of it a little bit more. And she says, these are the ways fans maneuver through the world with flimsy connections and strong hopes, which I think is quite interesting because then when she um, auditions for Heavens to Betsy. Uh, the seven-year Oh, the seven-year bitch. No, seven-year bitch. Yeah, when she auditions yeah. for seven-year bitch, she's just talking about like wanting, you know, she's, she's still in fan mode, right? And she sort of really fumbles it and is sort of uncool and overthinks it and then discusses later. And writes later. a long letter yeah. about why she should be in the band. And she's like, she's 18 or 19 and they're like, you're too young. Yeah, and she shows up like later and sees them later and she's like, I had this feeling that I was being a pest. And then later she plays a, a show, maybe with her first band, um, but one of the people from that band came up and gave her a compliment and didn't know who she was. And I remember distinctly her saying, like, music did what I always wanted it to do. It turned me into a different person. I loved that chapter. Because it's like, yeah, it's like Elizabeth who interviews her and is like, and calls her and is like, you can't be this band. Like, you're not ready. You're too young. You're you're writing us long letters. (laughs) And then later is like, you're such a good musician. And she doesn't even say like, hey, I'm the girl who... This, okay, has something like that ever happened to you? Because I, it happened to me once. I was a casting intern in college for this huge, huge casting director. And years later, I get called in for an audition and he's actually like in the room. He was like an upper level casting guy. So he's in the room and I do this audition and I can tell he doesn't recognize me. I mean, I used to like bring him coffee. He doesn't recognize me. He's like, oh my God, that was so great. And I could tell like, oh, maybe this is going to go somewhere. And then like a moron, I was like, hey, I don't know if you remember, (laughs) I was your intern. I did the thing where I was like, I actually, you know, this is going to be great. And immediately I could tell he was like, Oh, God. <laughs> like, <laughs> you just recontextualized you not, it. Yeah, recontextualized. Like, for a moment, I was a talented actor, and then that moment goes back, and no, actually, you are the intern bringing coffee. You know what I mean? It wasn't even cruel. It's just, like, the way people... It's like if you work as an assistant job for so long, sometimes those people only ever see you as an assistant and not as, like, the artist you actually are, and you have to, like, quit and, like, come back in another moment. Absolutely. Yeah, I think 
I was struck by her in that moment, not not tying it back to being like, actually, this yeah. is who I was. Because it seems like she's not vindictive. It also, you know, I think that if she had gone into that seven-year bitch audition going like, they would be so lucky to have me. One day they'll see. But she didn't yeah. have that confidence. So it wasn't like, now I need to be right. Now I need to sort of, she knew that it wasn't time. She wasn't qualified. and But she was like, but I, you know, through that, I found this, right? And and I think that that actually shows a sort of quietly earned confidence. I, I yeah. have been sort of, you know, an actor and, and sort of public facing to some degree since I was like 14 or 15. So I, I think I really... Um, Such an identity forming year too. I mean, she does speak about... Um, the article in Spin Magazine and sort of the idea of your identity being blasted and chosen for you um, before, which I can sort of quote, but before she was able to sort of reconcile and identify it and structure it herself. But um, I think for that reason, I've always, I don't want to say romanticized, but I think that I see a really intense value in like the luxury of being able to introduce yourself, you know? And so many of us have mm. things that enter the room before us or as we do and what people see. And it's, you know, all of these issues about race and sexuality and size and how we present ourselves and how we speak and um, dress. I think so much of the work is in creating a space to say what I'm here to actually do should speak for me. And if given the luxury, allow that to be the identifier of who I am, allow the audition to be the identifier, allow this band to be the identifier of who I am. I think it's powerful. That is the most stunning sentiment, <laughs> like the luxury of getting to introduce yourself. But I do think it's it's really powerful to just keep in mind and remember that every single person can and should surprise us. It's more fun that way in general. It's more fun yeah. to sort of like check any lens or filter you might be seeing things through and and be really open to it. But... I, I I absolutely adore that sentiment. Okay, let's jump back in. So she has this chapter on her mom. Then she has a chapter on her dad. And um, I, I, this is, I always say there's usually a psychic moment in every memoir. This one does not have one. I feel like she's too practical for, to go see a psychic. But <laughs> this is my psychic, <laughs> this is my psychic moment because I wrote, her writing really reminds me of a Miranda July movie. And later in the book, you find out she and Miranda are like kind of grew up together and are friends. So I want to read it. Um, also, have you seen the movie Beginners? No. It's by, oh, you would love it. And anyone listening, if you haven't seen it, it's this like, this is a little gift of a movie. Um, Miranda July's husband actually um, directed it, but it really reminded me of like this type of movie. Okay. This is what I know about my father. He grew up in Evanston, Illinois, outside of Chicago. He attended Duke University and then the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign for law school. He had a brother. He was the assistant coach of my soccer team and the head coach of my sisters. He ran marathons. He mowed the lawn. He was always working on something called a sump dump in the crawl space. He was slight and handsome, dark-eyed, wide-eyed, wide-nostrilled, looking curious and confounded, boyish. He was stern yet timid, a disciplinarian with no follow-through, self-conscious, not prone to affection, undemonstrative. He liked liver pate. He had a mustache and then he didn't. I cried when he shaved it off because I didn't know he had a space between the bottom of his nose and his upper lip like a pale secret. It just reminded me of like a character introduction in a bit of an artsy movie. You know what I mean? This is what we know about so-and-so. Yes. Scene, 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 scene. I, I really liked it. There's also something like, 
I love that she doesn't seem to be trying to be um, subversive, like at, by nature. And there's obviously moments where she speaks about it in relation to her music. But when you say, this is what I knew about my father, and this is the parent that you actually spent the most time with and spent... But yeah. if you can sort of put it all in two paragraphs in that way, and and they're sort of relegated to hyper-specific details and moments and disappointments and uh, a single food that he likes or whatever, it also, I think, as clearly as it dictates everything she knows about him, it also clearly dictates the distance, like about how sort of largely yes. unknowable he was, especially which, you know, in the psychic moment, right? Like later we find out that he also was struggling with not knowing himself or not being able to make eye contact with his identity and who he was. Uh, that is such a great way to put it because there's a distance between, her, there's a distance between a few things in this book, but she writes very specifically and detailed about them. But but in it, you feel like, oh, you're close with your dad, but you also don't know him. And I want to go right to that page you're just talking about. So it's in the same chapter. She comes home and her dad comes out to her. And she writes, I was used to this sort of presentational mode at this point. What I heard was, and she's talking about like throughout her life. What I heard was your mother's going to the hospital or your mother's moving out or I have cancer. And then a few years later, I have cancer. I was used to being sat down and presented with life altering information and taking it with expected nonchalance. This was me asking my friend's parents about MS all over again. My role was to be factual and professional like a reporter. Emotions were not a part of the equation. So tell me dad, how did you know? What my father explained next was basically the history of the internet, at least in terms of how we use it for social media networking. In fact, if it weren't for the internet, I don't know if my father would have realized or been able to acknowledge that he was gay. Which, ah, uh, I love. I mean, the internet is so bad, but so good. <laughs> yeah, I also love that he started the conversation with, so I guess I'm coming out to you. Um, there is such like a factual yeah. sort of unaffected, and she says like, he said it in sort of a meta way as if he were alone for a ride that his new self was taking him on, which was typical, like he was just a sidekick in his own life, a shadow. Um, and I think that that like, it's interesting that she sort of describes his passiveness, not in a derogatory way, but like in a, it's interesting that in moments of identity, in moments of like rebellion, she's so sort of head on, so brash, so straightforward. And she says before yeah. that, like, Parents are supposed to be our storage facilities. Enter a memory, let them hold on to it for you. Leave behind stuffed animals and school projects, report cards and clothes. They keep them so you don't have to. I knew that wasn't part of the bargain with my family. It's interesting too, because she writes about it. You very much understand like how she was raised to be like that, but then it is also present in her, like it carried with her, like deal with the emotion, deal with the problem remain until this moment that's coming later in the book when she's going to explode. But even the way she writes about things, you can tell like she was trained into be very mature, mm -hmm. handle it, like don't. But I thought was really interesting about this and I can't wrap my head around it. So I want to know your thoughts is that the, it's like a mom chapter, a dad chapter. Then later in the book, as you said, Spin Magazine is going to out her as bisexual um, without her even meaning to. And her dad calls her and is like, hey, do you have something you want to tell me? I just read this in a magazine. That's how she finds out that she's been, her sexuality has been outed before she even had a chance to wrap her mind around what her sexuality was. But then you realize in that chapter that that happened in the magazine two years before her dad comes out to her. Mm. But the two events are never 
tied together narratively or emotionally, and maybe they weren't tied together for them. But I can't imagine that her dad knowing this about her while struggling his whole life with his sexuality didn't make him feel safer or maybe inspired or, but, but, but none of that was connected. It is interesting because she says, when someone says that wasn't me, this is me. Then I wonder how I was myself around a you who wasn't. My father had been the constant, the territory, and now I felt like he was rescinding. I would have to discover him anew. And then she says, you know, if both of my parents are sort of on their own journeys, then my sister and I would be the adults. And and I sort of took it as um, that moment that solidified her sort of like deciding to grow up um, when in a way that felt like it needed to be really sort of black and white quantified when she didn't really consider her own sexuality to be something that desperately needed to be identified or sort of explored. It was just really amorphous and about the people she was around and their experiences. And, you know, I do think that as she talks about Corinne, like, it feels like she and Corinne are soulmates. I think playing music together is so intimate. And I think like our friends and our creative collaborators can be our soulmates in different ways. Okay, let's talk about Let's talk about Corinne. And I also love what you said about her sexuality. And I, one of my favorite things in this book is that it always just was. You know, she wasn't fighting feelings. She wasn't holding herself back from women or pushing herself towards men or either or. And um, she's actually talked about how she's been written about as gay or openly gay. And she's like, I'm actually bisexual. No one just, just no one ever asked me mm. the question. But also like, it's just not important to her. It's just sort of like she just is. And so- I have to talk about the Corinne relationship. Okay, so let's go through the timeline really quick. And I was like, this reads like what you said, like intense soulmate. You see someone at a show, they tell you to move to Olympia. You do, you call them, you form a band, you fly to Australia, you write a record together. And then this is how, I mean, two pages later, this is how it ends. She says, during this time, I broke up with Corinne. This is right after they've recorded the record. They went on a hike on a mountain. It was a sunny day and the views were exquisite, but we were both crying. I spent most of the time staring at my feet and at the path. After we talked, we were trapped in this new reality of separateness. The outdoors felt like the smallest room, tight and stifling. We had to make the long walk back to the car and then drive another few hours back to Olympia. I didn't know how to be so entwined with someone in the band, in a relationship, in the same apartment. Selfishly, naively, I wanted nothing to change. I wanted to still be close to Corinne for there to be continued trust and joy for the music to be an extension of those things. In reality, it would be much more brutal and heartbreaking. I wrote, not enough. I need more. Why? I agree. And also, I love so much that there's a part later where she says, we never questioned if we would still be in a band making music together. I know. It was like, it was this beautiful relationship, but there is a part where, um, I'll, I'll skip the Janet part and then I'll come back to it, but there's a part where they go on tour and she, like Carrie and the drummer Janet, ban her future husband, Lance, from coming to any shows on the tour. So Corinne starts dating this guy, Lance. He's going to become her husband later. Um, I went on a deep dive for their wedding photos, could not find a one. Um, <laughs> nice. I just needed to see it. I love people's wedding photos. And so anyways, she's like, we, we banned Lance from coming on tour. We thought he would come into our intimacy, come into our closeness. We thought he would ruin the music. It only made them stronger and like push them towards each other. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's in a band with her ex, 
falls in love. He's not allowed to come on tour. I was like, oh, this is like very, I don't know. It reminded me of when I was like in a van touring um, our comedy show of the drama. The The drama. Again, it's like the smaller space that you're in, the bigger everything feels. But I do think there's something interesting about those moments where she'll just say, resentment grew. And like, that's the entire thing. You go, wow, that (laughs) represents so, like such a weighty, ever permeating dynamic. And it's just two words. And and that's how you want, like, that's effective. Great. So now we know that this is present yeah. in the room and I don't need to know details about that. Um, but yeah. it does. And she also said it's in the music. She was like, me and Corinne's relationship and what happened to us, like, is in our songs. Yeah. Which I found interesting. Almost like she didn't want to write about it in the book because it's like already in their albums if you go hunting for it. Did you get that feeling? Yeah. And we've said everything that we need to say about it. And I will say the like, tenderness, dignity, respect with which she speaks about not only Corinne, but their dynamic and their, like her sort of, their professional dynamic and also their personal dynamic. I think it indicates it's so elevated and it doesn't make me want to like hunt for discourse. It makes me be like, oh, good, great. I'm glad that they ended up. But there is, you know, I don't want to like jump too far, but when she talks about the spin article, Something that she says, again, of just sort of being like, we've already spoken on it. There was something here where she says, there is the identity you have in a band or as an artist when you exist for no one other than yourself or for your co-conspirators, your co-collaborators. When you own the sounds and when who you are is whoever you want to be. There are no definitions as prescribed by outsiders, strangers. You feel capricious, full of contradictions and areas of yourself feel frayed or blurred. Other times you feel resolute or whole, but it's all a part of you. It just doesn't feel fractured, just mutable. But once your sound exits the room, it's no longer just yours. Belongs to everyone who hears it, right? Again, like speaking towards the fan dynamic. And then, and who you are is at the mercy of the audience's opinions and imagination. If you haven't spent any time deliberately and intentionally shaping your narrative, if you're unprepared, like I was, then one will be written for you. And if you already feel like a fractured self, you will start to feel like a broken one. Which is so... One of my favorite sentences. So beautiful. And so, you know, um, again, like a pragmatic way of of describing like such a dehumanizing, public, challenging sort of trauma. Right. And that they'd never told the journalists that. Like somehow they knew it from the scene and then it becomes a part of their band because she and Corinne started the band. They'll late they go through like five drummers until they find Janet. And so which I also find funny. It's like Janet joins this band of two exes, yeah. which is also like such a dynamic. And I loved Janet and what they said about Janet. Yeah. Oh my God. And like how she would just like she, her drumming was so powerful that she like made the band what it was in a way they had never been before. And that she was the most musically literate one. I think it's like yeah. really interesting in a in a scene that is sort of defined by not being designed by the industry or sort of inclusionary of the industry or even to some degree like as a rejection of musical ideology that they're all educated in or whatever. They really like created their music as a from a place of instinct and not being so sort of educated on the right way to do this and theory. And then when Janet came in, she sort of added that like structure and that legitimacy as well as being like a road dog, right? Like she was the sort of 
one who gave them a template for how to be on the road with the lifers and and lit, find a sense of home and comfort in that, which I've spent a lot of time on tour with my husband's band. And it definitely is like, there are some people who are really designed for that life. I mean, she, she goes on a lot about the challenges of being on the road, but, um, and then there are some people who they can't, it just doesn't work for them. And I think, and that's about like being in a band, right? But also picking up, being away, having a sense of impermanence. And then, you know, those interpersonal dynamics, right? If that's your family, your entertainment, your friends, your roommates, and your, your lovers. Yeah, your lovers, yeah. your ex-lovers. Like it really, it, your boss and your employee. And like, it just is all so yeah. muddy. And I mean, I lived on the road for a little bit um, doing comedy, which is different, but there were a lot of similarities, especially when she's describing like this disgusting van they all live in. I was like, yes, I've lived in that van. Um, Definitely not for me. When it is not for you, it's hard. But then you like, you want the art, you know? But like, I am not, there were people who would be like, oh my God, we're in this little town. Like, let's go look at this like ski resort. And I was just like, I'm dying. I'm reading a book in the corner. I'm like falling asleep. Like, it's really, really hard. Sibling fights are unavoidable. But what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondry's podcast, Disintel, is hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Balasai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disintel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I started this podcast because I have been obsessed with memoirs my entire life. And I can't believe it, but I got to write my own. And it comes out on June 4th, and you can order it right now. The book, you know, I was asked to describe it, and I said, it is an absolutely harrowing, traumatic memoir, but funny. So if that sounds good to you, order it. Let me give you some topics that are in this memoir. A female best friendship breakup. How I got my break into Hollywood. When I found out my dad was not my real dad. The time I dated a magician. Are those last two related? Who's to say? Read the book. Growing up in Utah. Growing up around cults. How I got into therapy. Listen, I could keep going. Each chapter title is a different woman's name in my life. Some are heroes. Some are motherfucking villains. But you know what? A villain and a hero, what are both of those things? A leading role. And we do love women in our leading roles. So pre-order the book. It matters a lot. I linked everywhere that you can buy it in the show notes, but you know, go anywhere. Also, I am reading the audiobook personally. So I'm personally narrating it. So if you like this podcast, get my longest podcast ever. And the audiobook is also available for pre-sale everywhere you get audiobooks. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. You are the reason I got to write a memoir. So thank you so, so much. Um, and then this leads into a chapter she titles uh, Selling Out, where it's like, what do you do when you've created this special thing which 
does really odd things in music, like uh, Curran's guitar is like always, um, it's always in C sharp. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And how she just had tuned it to her voice and they just never thought to change it. And so there's always this like eeriness to their music. And so, yeah. And like, you know, but this like, quote unquote, accidental specialness. Whereas like, had you gone to like music theory school, they would, you know, maybe guide you away from that. So then they start getting really successful and it's not, they they're never like uh, she she always talks about it, like they're very critically successful and they have a lot of fans but maybe they never hit that like sort of mass market success and a part of that is because they grew up thinking that makes you a sellout like to be punk is to like reject all of these things and when they start to get successful they then have to face like are we going to sign with a record label like what does that make us does it make us punks and like. And then her talking about the pretense of that. Is that where you're going to talk about? Yeah, she, yeah. Yeah, when she talks about initially writing, she goes, the notion of simple or complex didn't really matter as much as sound. I guess you would call that punk, but I also think it's just a matter of creating without the watchful eye of an audience or outside expectations in one's head. And they were like scrappy. And then, yeah, in the selling out of it all. And then after them sort of navigating that, she seems quite frustrated and discouraged by the pretense. She said, eventually I started to cringe at the elitism that was often paired with punk and the like. A movement that professed inclusiveness seemed to actually be highly exclusive, as alienating and ungraspable as many of the clubs and institutions that drove us to the fringes in the first place. One set of rules had simply been replaced by new ones, and they were just as difficult to follow. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. yes. <laughs> it was, uh, I was so, I loved that paragraph. And again, like, I hate to do this, like, comedy mapping, but, like, there is, like, a grunginess to, like, dirty comedians and uh, and how I came up. But, like, yeah, we're, you're the others. You're the, you're the misfits. You don't fit in. You're here to, like, you're not going mainstream. Like, you're going to, like, create your own art. And then you create this little world that is just as fucking clicky mm-hmm. and hierarchy and vicious as the world you're possibly making fun of. Yeah. Or writing music about. I mean, it's, a, she, yeah. She also says, like, I wanted our shows not just to be, to galvanize, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to destroy the room. More than that, I wanted to obliterate myself, to unlock and uncork the anger, to disappear into the sound and into the music. And before that, she says, the seeking was tactile, the process of discovery more arduous, but also highly interactive. And the idea of, like, being so open, being so, like, she says, with access to everything, we can dabble without really knowing. Like, she does talk about, like, if you don't have encyclopedic music knowledge, there's a point in my life where I would have heavily judged you. Do you know, how do you not know this band, this band, this band? Or if you only, if you don't know these bands, then you're not my type of person. And she like eventually uh, breaks through it, which I also love. Cause I've also known the people who never break through it. You right. know what I mean? It's like, it's like the, what's your mixtape? What's your playlist? What songs are on there? Kind of judgment. And I'm always like, oh my God, don't look. What if there's a song from a musical on there? Yeah. She, yeah. It's, yeah. But I think that she is so examining, right? And that's like the most beautiful thing about the way that she writes is she's really thoughtful and perceptive about why she found herself in this situation, why she reacted in this way. And you see sort of a lot of growth in her being like, that initially was my sort of instinct in this way. And while I was really, really open in this way and this way, then I wasn't in this way. And once I've sort of moved through it, it's cool. I like her. (laughs) It is really cool. Yeah, me too. And she's so, so precise. Okay, so 
they make more records. They get pretty big. They can like sign with different music labels. There is one story about her where I was like, let me just recap it. They go in to meet with Maverick, um, which is a record company. And it's like maybe part of this sellout phase. And she says she has low blood sugar. And she's kind of like, I don't want to be a sellout. And she's like, I'll be right there, goes to a deli and eats this chowder and like has a soda. Like, and she's going to come and meet them in the meeting. So I'm like, oh, she's like going to be 10 minutes late for this meeting. She's 45 minutes late to the meeting. I, it definitely hit my like little overachiever. Like I've been the person where the other person is 45 minutes late. I've never been the 45 minutes late person. And I was like, oh, that is Carrie. Like it's such a, there's such a sturdiness to like making that decision and then writing about it and knowing it was bad. And it was like such an insight into the person who makes those choices, which I th- I don't think I've ever had before, you know? And that, it's Sorry, interesting as well, like when we talk about hunger, right? That in that moment, that's like one of the one times where it's like a, so the physical sort of literal manifestation of her choosing hunger and, you know, yeah, you can be 10 minutes late. You can grab something from a bodega and walk in and still be just as punk and go like, hey, sorry, I'm eating. I haven't eaten all day. Like, go ahead with the meeting. And it still is like yeah. making a strong statement. But I think um, I was really confused by that. But then later you begin to see these sort of moments of self-sabotage or moments of not protecting the sort of greater good looking, maybe it, maybe it's like short-sighted, um, but it does feel sort of psychic in that way. I feel like you just articulated something that is um, fear-based selfishness, mm. which I think selfishness often reads and has read to me before as like this cruel, grandiose, you know, um, awful thing versus like a very fear-based self-sabotage, mm-hmm. like, um, like not something cruel. It's almost like cruel to the self. Yeah, and it's and it's also, um, I I have found myself in situations and definitely like chunks of life where I didn't believe that I was worth taking a chance on or giving an opportunity to or showing up for. And so for that reason, yeah. if you believed that I was, I didn't respect you. And I almost wanted to punish you for taking a chance on me. And I wanted oh, to be like, I'll yeah. show you that I'm not worth that by not showing up, being late, being disrespectful of your time, not giving my best. But it's, it's all self-punishment. so eliminating. <laughs> yeah. And also that person who will stick through all of that is also dealing with some fucking demon that is sending them on this ride. And like, everybody needs therapy. Yeah. <laughs> everybody got to go yeah. therapy. Something that I- they actually do. At the end of chapter nine, she says, thus I decided to retreat to put the energy further into the performance. My persona would not be about artifice or flamboyancy. It would not be alien or otherworldly. It would be about kineticism. It would be about movement. Again, I returned to the notion that my salvation was to be in motion. I would be galvanic on stage so that off stage I could try to figure out how to eventually live with a stillness with myself. And I feel that that <sighs> really expresses, you know, a lot of it comes back to the why, right? As an actor, it sort of is like, yeah. what's the character's main fear, main desire? And when we talk about fear-based selfishness, it's like afraid to be still is a real, and I relate a lot to that. I. Uh- I I relate to it in a way that it feels I'll never know it in my lifetime. (laughs) 
Right. Exactly right. Such, yeah. I'm such an intense issue for me. I don't think it's coming. No, I, I don't think healing is on its way. Worship Carrie for her desire and her journey <laughs> and her ability to identify it. I reject it, but love it for her. Yeah, love it. Love it for her. Um Okay. Okay, so they're getting pretty successful. I want to read um one of the things I just absolutely loved is she prints some reviews in this book that are actually really positive reviews about the band, but out just how sexist the writing about women in rock and punk is. So I just want to read this one that the one that got me the most um, from Metroactive in 1999. But never does Sleater Kinney sound forced, angry, or sweet. The three words one most associates with all women rock bands and the three words that tend to hold women's music back from the kind of raw believability that characterizes more macho rock. I was like, you, it made me actually physically angry on their behalf. Forced, angry, and sweet. Honestly, three qualities that those could probably be like if I was, if I, Chelsea Devantes, was written about in a script, you could say Chelsea Devantes, brunette, forced, angry, sweet. I mean, <laughs> it's the truth is women are often so shrill. Um, and it, oh, uh, right. Their voices. It's just better when they don't speak. <clears throat> um, no, I'm, I'm, I liked that she said it. And again, she sort of does hold it with an open hand. She isn't screaming about this. She is sort of contextualizing this and presenting it to us. And also, you know, this is also on the heels of like her speaking about Bikini Kill and her saying that Bikini Kill had really like opened a lot of doors for them or she gives like a big shout to them. What page is this? She's like, I'm so happy they went first because they fought so many battles for us to even like stand on the stage after them. And the constant like, a woman in rock, a woman in rock, and never just a band, always like a female rock band. And what's it like to be a woman in rock? And like, yeah, she says questions that still happen to everyone, but like in the late 90s, oh my God. Yeah, it's definitely, it, it still is like this, this, this for a girl, this, 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 like, you know, and, and also, you know, we see it in press tours of movies that are directed by women. We see that the the conversation is largely about interpersonal dynamics. And we see that like with music, and I've certainly done it with my friends who are musicians. I've been like, what's it like to live in a van with four boys? Like it's, yeah, do you know, yeah. like it's, it's already still this sort of thing. Um, you know, she does mention like we all sort of to some degree internalize the misogyny of it. And also just best case scenario, the novelty, right? She says a certain kind of exhaustion sets in from having to constantly explain and justify one's existence or participation in an artistic and creative realm. And she says, Bikini Kill weren't the first. They had predecessors and influences, but they carved, tore, and clawed out a space in music for which I'm very grateful. And I know that Sleater Kinney has also had such a huge effect on musicians of all genders that have come after them they really existed in their own space and and also so many articles were written just still contextualizing them being impressive for girls. Yes, yes, absolutely. And a really interesting thing too is that she actually calls out that they kind of came out when the Spice Girls were out. And these two dualities of feminism. I disagree in hindsight about this perspective on the Spice Girls, but I, but actually hearing her write about it, it made me rethink my own opinions of like, the Spice Girls mean this like kind of trite, sellout, 
sexy, vapid feminism and them wanting to offer like a more gravitas feminism where like you don't have to look a certain way or dress a certain way or be a certain way. And um, I think now in the wave of feminism we're in now, or at least the wave I live in is like both of them are equally feminism to me, you know, especially like both groups journeys. It's just like feminism is not bound by like uh, whether you, you know, go for quote unquote sexy or not quote unquote sexy, but reading about it from her perspective in that moment in time felt like, uh, they really were a rebellion against all female, all the all female groups that were getting popular and being in rock, particularly a place, a genre where women were not allowed in a way they were quote unquote allowed in pop. Yeah. I remember her talking about Heavens to Betsy and she said they were so cool and so not funny. Yeah. <laughs> like she was, and she tried to not be funny around Corinne. She was like, I, like, I don't want to be funny because she's not funny. And like later has to reveal that like, She's kind of sarcastic and like, is that okay? Yes. And also like then <laughs> yeah. co-creates a prolific <clears throat> sketch show and puts Corinne's son in it. Like she- it, Oh, I know. It's so- there- But it is like about, you know, in order to carve a new space, you have to be very serious. It does seem like Sleater Kinney, as they sort of evolved, they didn't seem as self-serious as- you would maybe be led to believe by how inspired she was by the fact that it was important yes. to not be funny. Yes, no, completely, completely. So they open for Pearl Jam, like they're getting bigger and bigger. And then Corinne gets pregnant. And Carrie is like, oh my God, I don't know who I am without the band. And like, she's taking some time. Um, she married Lance. She's taking some time to like have her son. Carrie, one of the lead singers in a rock band becomes a substitute teacher immediately in the public school and like says she learns to like put on high heels so the students don't think she's a fellow student and then just like is like I guess I'm a substitute teacher now and then later she's like maybe I could become a PA on a film set and then even later than that we'll like move for a relationship to the bay and like go to grad school for writing and then like later drop out of that but it's like so I feel like that is such a typical life of an artist where like and at any second, um, you are no longer a big artist. Like you are a waitress now. Like that's how swift it can change. It's like if I feel it in my hand all the time too. I'm like at any moment. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I mean, she. What if this goes away? What are you? She is marked by her scrappiness. She sort of speaks all throughout every journey of like the ability to just figure it out. That she was downtrodden, bewildered, and ungrounded, and. It was this post 9-11 mindset where all the structures that you felt like you could count on now seemed tenuous. Her sort of reinvention of her creative outlet or her inspiration and what she's studying evolves so much and does seem to be really tied to this sort of like transience geographically. Yeah, I I absolutely loved that. And she'll mention it later of like they're going to film Portlandia, which she's not going to talk about at all, but you can you really do get a sense in her talking about the music of like what it meant to her. Also, you mentioned the 9/11 thing and I have to bring up on this podcast we have um a little bit of a theme which is the the 9/11 to purpose pipeline where a memoirist mentions 9/11 and how it created a new purpose in their life because it was such a, you know, cataclysmic event. Um like for Jessica Simpson, she decides to marry Nick Lachey. For Carrie Brownstein, she gets back into the band. She's like, we're performing music again. Like music is who I am. And then they're touring again. 
And Corinne is married and has a child and they're trying to make it through this. And here's my one white stripes tangent. Mm. Um, and I posted about this on my Instagram when I was like doing the book club. She, they have a lot of openers that she talks about. And then she says, later when the white stripes were huge, they asked us to open a few shows in order to repay the kindness. And we gladly did. Jack White remains gracious, generous, and one of my favorite performers. We always wanted to bring openers that raised our level of playing and performance. And I was like, is this shade to Meg White, the only other member of the band in 2000 when she is writing about this? I go on this spiral. Debbie, I'm sure you already knew this, but like in the 2000s, I was in a small town. I, if it wasn't on the cover of People magazine, I missed it. I, to- I totally still thought that Jack White and Meg White were siblings as they told the world and was later revealed that they were married. It's a it's a really great, it's one of the greatest plot twists in real life. I think it was like a beautiful, yes. it's also great that at any point that someone discovers that, it still is enough of a long play and a mislead that it lands. I, I was shook reading this and then like discovering that he actually took Meg White's, like, so it's Meg White, he took her last name. And then there's another thing on this podcast called Women We Need to Check On. And I just want to put Meg White into that list. She was with Jack White, wasn't into music. He puts her in the band. He divorces her. They come out and pretend to be siblings for years. She does not. Also, she's, she bounced. Like, yo, she's gone. She's yeah, gone. She's like, I don't even want to play. She you leaves can't mid-tour check on her. in 2007. Yes, yeah. amazing. You're right. I can't check on her. She she is unchecked. She does not want to be checked on. I think like, that is very if true. If we want to respect Meg White, let's leave Meg White alone. <laughs> she does okay, not right, want to be checked right. on. Um, Women we need to leave alone, <laughs> Meg White. <laughs> new category. Um, yeah, I loved her talking about Jack White and that thing in Overland College in Ohio. When she talks about, like, Time Magazine had just named them the best band in the world. And they get invited to go out <laughs> yes. and sort of, you know, Jack was this cool, formidable sort of friend and touring tour mate. And... Um, them trying to go to this this thing and realizing how sort of this like party at a college yeah like with pizza and beer like being rejected from this party because she does talk about again duality right how about how when someone is standing there looking at them on stage they feel larger than life and worth inviting to a stranger to their house and then when they arrive they are just people and yet again the thing of like music turned me into another person. You know, when she wasn't yeah. playing the music, she was still Carrie who, like, you know, was sitting in the corner of the room while other people were being cool or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I love that so much. She's like, I wonder if they ever saw Jack White in the future and thought, is that a guy we rejected from our party on account of the party being too full? Yeah. Of, like, just like a house party with, with beer bong being too full. So oh, good. Oh, that was so fun. So they're touring, I believe they're in Germany when this happens. Brussels. Um. Brussels, yes. And she gets shingles. And oh, yeah. shingles that's brought on by stress. And she's also had some other physical ailments that I'm skipping over, but like she's kind of breaking down on tour. But the shingles brought on by stress, she's like, no, I can keep going. I can keep doing it. And then she's just getting like sicker and sicker. And she like hates being on tour. And she writes this. It was time for us to play, but I for once couldn't access any reserves. I felt like mush, murky. I was an outsider and outside, undone, unraveled. I started to cry. It was that ugly kind of sadness of wailing where your face distorts, lips curl, your features cascade like a waterfall. And then, whack, I punched myself in the face. Over and over, I repeated the motion. Each blow brought the feeling to the surface. 
The hatred rose up and I hit it back down. I saw the enemy and it was me. I wanted to destroy it. Pow, I couldn't stop. Thud, you fucking fraud. I was in the ring with only myself. Here's your fear, punch. Here's your anger. Here's every sickness you've ever known. Slap, here's your powerlessness. Smack, I boxed myself into oblivion. I was going to make myself extinct. And then her bandmates are standing in front of her horrified. They're trying to stop her. And then she says, each hit was the end. The end. We were past the end. In a matter of minutes, Sleater Kinney was gone. I had knocked its lights out. We would play the next show from this fresh grave. Yeah. And this is like how the band ends, which thematically she has not shown this emotion, at least in the writing of the book. Like you don't hear a, a lot how she's feeling. You hear how she feels like distance from her feelings and how she handles things. She handles things. And then this intense moment of like, punching herself in the face to the point that the band ends itself having watched her do this. And that's like kind of the big, it's like at the end of the book, like the band's over. They play like a couple more shows after that. I didn't realize how climactic it would be. And it's interesting that all of the punches were fear, anger, every sickness you've ever known, powerlessness, which I thought was interesting because she talked about going back to that tour, you know, after... Corinne had Marshall and they talked about like, we didn't smoke, we didn't do any drugs, we barely drank. They did a lot of the work themselves. They were back sort of in the hands-on decision-making process of doing all of it. And she also then says, you know, as the sort of shingles are happening, like despite the fact that they did the best they could to not invite any amount of chaos, her body was still telling her that she was unwell. And she says, it's yeah. no wonder that many artists deal with tour by desensitizing themselves until the moment they are on stage. Tour is a precarious nexus between monotony and monomania, a day of nothingness followed by a moment that feels like everything. You deal with tour by reading, walking, watching TV or movies, zoning out online. If you're lucky, you engage in an activity that posits you in a specific place, a museum, a visit with a friend, a local restaurant. Most of the day feels shapeless, a blurriness that comes into focus only once you sound check and begin the progression towards the show itself. Even the day's most mundane activities, eating, drinking coffee, working out in the hotel gym, doing a phone interview with a weekly paper for an upcoming show, all of these things carry with them a sense of validation and productivity because they are couched within the sphere of tour. But in actuality, it's aimless. If it's not already numbing, you find a way to get yourself numb. And I thought what was so interesting about this is she doesn't speak too specifically about it, but she mentions feelings of dissociation a lot. And it's something that I have done a lot of work surrounding um, just to sort of try and slam myself back into my body, which is my natural sort of responses to be like, I don't like how this feels. Guess I won't feel it or be here for it. Guess I'll watch this interaction (laughs) from the corner of the room. (laughs) And I didn't realize like it, it was just this strange journey that I went on with my relationship with sleep, with my relationship with acting, being present, being public facing, um, where it, I was wondering why at some point I had big lapses of memory, just whole moments and weeks that I didn't remember. Um, and yeah. also walking through life and not knowing if it was real, if I was dreaming and I have very vivid dreams and now I can sort of control those dreams. And there's so much relationship with, I don't want to dissociate. I do want to be present for my life and I want to be in my life. And um, it's such an interesting way of saying that like, it's not about drugs or alcohol or, you know, chasing being in different relationships. She talks about like not really having hookups on the road or one night stands or anything. Um, yeah. And even if she wanted to, she wouldn't, she didn't have game. Like, and yeah. And the idea of like 
if she's reading a book or watching TV or playing music, just being away was so dissociative for her. And it was so uncomfortable that she was often numb. And then that culminating in repeatedly punching herself out. And um, and then the chapter ending with her saying, we've not talked about that night in Brussels since. Like, yeah. Also, so intimate. I mean, what you just said about dissociating related to Carrie and yourself is so, um, it's so well said. And I've also intensely struggled with this myself and never, ever knew it was happening until I got into some deep therapy. But like, I think that's the crazy thing about dissociating. Like, it's like a choice your body makes for you. Mm -hmm. It's not a mental choice you're in control of. Mm -hmm. And so it takes so long to get out of it because you never knew you were in it. Mm -hmm. You you know, like it's just your, your brain leaves for you rather than you saying, I want my brain to leave. Um, And then, And you're right. She goes through so much of that until that moment, which is like one of the ways to bring yourself back. Not a good way would be to punch yourself in the face, (laughs) but like a very physical reaction. And then Sleater Kinney is, is over and she's, she's, um, feels a lot of relief in it. And now I'm going to go into this chapter. I just want to say to anyone who has sensitivity towards animal stories, um, you can skip the next couple minutes of this podcast. I'm going to recap this animal chapter that fucking haunts me. I also had so many friends reach out and they're like, have you made it to the dog chapter yet? And I'm, I'm a huge dog person. I was like, I don't know if I'm ready for this. So anyways, listen, if you're listening to the podcast, you want to skip a very sad story, you can skip it, but it's important to carry in this book. Do you know what I'm talking about, Debbie? I know what you're talking about. It's yeah, funny okay, that we okay. didn't give a disclaimer uh, for her beating the shit out of herself, but... <laughs> I know. It's so like... Great, great, great point. But you know what? There's a disclaimer on every episode. A lot's going to get into it. But I will say, I got so many DMs specifically saying the animal chapter like haunts me to this day. Again, I didn't know what I was in for. And when it happened, I... She's so specific. I think it's especially impactful when you realize like being around animals and our sort of human an instinct of what that companionship brings, especially in her ability, inability to be still and alone. So, okay, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, that it, that is so well said. She comes off of tour and she starts working at an animal shelter and starts getting a lot of animals. So she has a cat that she's had um, named Hector for a long time. She gets Lyle, she gets Toby, she gets another dog. And she's just like, Animal City, animals get in my house. I said, yes. This is my future. <laughs> Just like pile a bunch of animals in the house. Two cats, two dogs. Her talking about how it was an even number, but then suddenly she felt in the middle and the spotlight of it. And yeah, those yeah. were her homies. So and much of her life was informed by... By these animals and like how healing animals can be. And I think especially like if you have been through, I think it, with anyone, but also specifically I have noticed with women and women who've been through trauma... Um, dogs and animals offer so much intense healing. There's like so many dogs in female memoirs where they devote entire chapters to them because it's just like so important. And then this chapter ends, I mean, I was like dry heaving. I had to take a break. The chapter ends where she leaves her cats upstairs and she's this like green netting that like sections them off from the dogs. And when she comes home, like everything's like quiet and still and something's wrong. And she discovers that the dog's killed her oldest cat, Hector. I won't go into detail because it was honestly, I'm a little baby and I was like, oh, I hate it. And like the other cat's outside and like the other cat has to be like given away for good because the dogs could hurt it. She has to like send her dogs away for a week. And then it's just like this 
devastation of like losing the band, losing everything, losing her cat, like losing her little animal house. And it's like the run out of the book. She also explains, you know, in particularly this one dog that she adopted that she, you know, he mauled shoes and books and like she was enchanted by his athleticism, even though all that made him agile potentially made him hurtful as well. And it wasn't merely love, it was an adventure. And so there is something beautiful about the fact that this thing that she chose, which was an adventure and this sort of thing that was bigger and again, more vicious and sort of more fierce, which again is a theme of things that she's attracted to, ends up being a thing that actually destroys and kills the the longest sense of comfort that she's had. And she says... Hero was again without a family, my only identity, a loner. A male loner is a hero of sorts, a rebel, an iconoclast, but the same is not true of a female loner. There is no virility in a woman's autonomy. There's only pity. There's floating. I had created my own abandonment. So I forgot how beautiful that sentence is. And just so, so true of like how we also see female loners. And she's just like in this house, like in the woods with all these animals. And then the animals are gone. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm like fucking sad again. I know. It's, um, <clears throat> yeah, really powerful. And then they have played their last Sleater Kenny show in 2006. And she's like, it, it was honestly like not this huge deal. She goes, after we walked off stage at that final Sleater Kenny show in 2006, we went to the dressing room, we drank champagne, there were toasts and cheers and hugs, then we danced. And then they like stay all night in this club. She said, when around 3 a.m., the club staff shut off the sound system and turned on the lights. We stayed on the floor for nearly a full five minutes, stomping our feet and clapping our hands, still dancing. We wanted more to hear an echo, an encore of ourselves. Mm. And that is the end of the book. And then I want to go right into the epilogue because right above the epilogue, I wrote, what? (laughs) Okay. She said... In 2011, Fred Armisen and I were at Corinne and Lance's house. We were sitting on a lumpy behemoth of a couch that the Tucker Bangs family called Mocha Chenille, showing them an early cut of a Portlandia episode that featured their son, Marshall. Out of the blue, Corinne asked if I thought Sleater Kenny would ever play again. The answer was obvious. The reason I wrote that is because we do not get a moment of how Portlandia happened, how it came to be. And I get that, yeah, like she's in it, so she's not writing about it, but we don't even know how she paired up with Fred. How did she become a sketch comedian? Like nothing. That's so funny. I'm dying for it. I love it. Give me a second book, Carrie. And I love that, you know, he's such a musician and he's so understated. I think that this is, again, her saying, everything I have to say on that subject is out there. If you're interested in yeah. Portland, you'll watch the show. Like, I think. Yes, exactly. Like, you're not going to hear it from me. Yeah. See you it. later. And then they do. They they perform again. They keep it a secret. They get back up on their feet. And then this is the very last paragraph of the book. When I looked down, my feet were moving and I was headed stage right to the place I've always stood in Sleater Kenny. That was a start. I knew where to go and where to be. There was a thunderous greeting from the crowd. It was a hello. So enormous. I could climb inside. And I did. Tears stung my eyes. Corinne started the first notes of Price Tag, the opening track on the new album. Two bars later, Janet and I came in. I was in my body, joyous and unafraid. I was home. Uh, I mean, when we talk about her being so transient and moving and constantly looking for home, even from the time that she was a child and not feeling that she could have that at home, and, um, and then, and also not feeling comfortable or at home in her body. Yeah, or dissociating, leaving, and now she's home and it's the band. Beautiful. It's perfect. It's like the perfect conclusion. And I, I, 
yeah, it makes me really um, excited to to get more into the music and understand it. But also, you know, my therapist told me to protect the art, you have to protect the artist. And oh. it does feel like that's oh my pretty present in this story I feel like well. your therapist just told me that. What's oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. mine is yours. Yeah, wow, yeah. That, is, that is stunning. Um, okay, this podcast has something we call the book dull test. That is my dumb name for it, where it has three questions about the book. So the first question is this. Was the author vulnerable? Did they share their truth? I think she completely shared her truth. I think, you know, vulnerability is a tricky thing because mm-hmm. I think vulnerability always has to be at the expense of something, your own comfort, your own mm-hmm. like transparency and authenticity and telling people things that normal people don't tell people or that feel very personal sometimes gets mistaken for vulnerability. Um, I think that there were times where she says things in a really, not dissociated, but like a very sort of blunt way or precise and factual. Yep. I I totally agree. Uh, Also a beautiful point about vulnerability. Okay. Second question. Was the book entertaining to read? Yes. So much. I had no idea what was going to happen. It touched in so many different categories and interesting thoughts. And she clearly studies like sociolinguistics and people. And it was so readable. I would read it all over again. Yeah, I totally agree. And I also did something I never do. I, I, I'm like you, I read with a pen. Like I need to hold the book in my hand, especially, I mean, just as how I read, but also for this podcast. But I was on my last week of the show I'm on and I was shadowing the director and I was like, oh my God, I listened to an audio portion of this book on my like drive. We were like shooting Malibu. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna listen to the audio book like for this like two hour long drive. And I've never, I never enjoy audiobooks almost ever. And I loved it. I like loved Did she read it? her voice. Yeah, she reads it. And she's also very precise in how she speaks. Like the, it made me feel like, because there were parts of the book where I was like, oh, are we missing something? And then hearing her read it, I was like, we're not. Like, this is you. Like, it's she is the person she talks about. Like, I am mature. I handle it. I cool. talk it out. Like, you know, yeah, I really, really loved it. I also felt that, like, in addition to being, as a book, great to read, every sentence was so thoughtful and interesting. Her ways of seeing things and articulating things are so unique. I could crawl inside of her brain. It totally made sense to me that she had a stint in academia because the book almost feels like academic at times, but of the self or like of the music and like where you're like really going deep in those things. Yes. Um, And and that objectivity, I think, is actually really powerful because it allows you to understand something without placing a judgment on it or an expectation on it, which I like. Yeah, totally. Okay, very last question. Did reading this book elevate your life in some way? Yeah, I loved loved seeing everything through this lens and I loved hearing her voice. And I feel like it was probably several years worth of therapy that I experienced and got some takeaways from. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I feel the same. And I think the specific way this book really got me is like, I'm in this moment personally where like, and you know this, like when you work in TV, there's, there's so many dates and deadlines. Like you have to get the episode in, you have to get the episode done. It's just like a very much a, you just have to get it done. And Mm -hmm. I've been in a moment of like trying to, or like missing maybe the fucked up and messier parts of my art that 
you can't have when you're on strict deadlines because you just have to mm-hmm. push through them. You can't sit and get messy. And I think reading this like reminded me of just what you were talking about of like to protect it and to make space for it. And like the way Carrie, like whether she wanted to or not, like is forced to make space for that part of herself um, really reminded me to do the same. And also like the intense reverence and specificity she had for like the creation of their art um, really felt Mm. inspiring in a way that again, like when you're on a strict deadline, sometimes you don't have like those moments and I like want to get those moments back. And it's right before like a holiday break. And I'm just, it, it was like the perfect book to launch me into this. Wow. That's a great point. That's so well said. Also her openness to constantly evolving reminded me to sort of also stay open and, and she could be anything. And I think that like creativity can take different forms and learning and openness can take different forms. And she's created a lot of really important, cool, valuable work from that. So we can too. We can too. Um, Women can too. (laughs) Um, Girl power, spice up your life. Um, (laughs) So true, bestie. Truly. Um, Debbie, thank you so much for coming on. This conversation really elevated my life. And I just like so appreciate (laughs) having you to talk about this book with. This was like truly, truly wonderful. So thank you so much for coming on. And Everyone in the world already follows you, Debbie. But if you don't follow Debbie, obviously go follow her. Um, also, your Instagram is like really beautiful and artistic. I just have to say that. Like, <laughs> it's like not everyone has a. Anyways, it's beautiful. I really it like it. It scares me so much to put things on Instagram. I just, really? It feels so. Yeah. It yeah. Feels so, invasive. Um, I don't know how to do it. Um, I just like don't think about it. But um, thanks. I yeah. think that's maybe why I like it. <laughs> It's just like you can see the sort of hesitancy. No, it's, um, yeah, if one person from book club follows me, then I'll start posting again. That's my Okay, deal. you heard it here first, you guys. In <laughs> droves, go to Tebby's Instagram and um, look for her movie Shortcomings, which I'm really, really excited to see. Um, and thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. That is all for this week's episode. Oh my God, am I in love with Debbie now. Also, I don't know if you guys can tell, but I'm recording this on the tail end of being sick. I feel like that came out at moments, so I'll just call it out now. Happy 2023. What a way to jump back into this year. And I just want to give a huge shout out to our producer, Kate Downey, and our episode engineer, GJ Bouncy House. If you guys love this podcast, go to our Patreon. It is linked in the show notes, patreon.com slash Devantes. You get one extra bonus episode a month by supporting us. Also by supporting us, you support us and keep this podcast going, which means a lot to us. So we will see you guys very soon for another juicy ass book. Also, go to Debbie's Instagram. Cookies, flood the Instagram. I feel like we can do this. And then Debbie's going to post more. And I personally need that. So go do that. And then also on my Instagram, I will post about the episode. So if you have something to say about Carrie, come to my Instagram, get into it in the DMs, get into it on the Patreon. We also have a Facebook group celebrity book club podcast where people start their own discussions all the time so if you have something to say from this don't dm me because then it stays within me i mean i love your dms always dm me but if you want a bigger conversation and you want a book club about it go to one of the groups or the comments okay bye